Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Goodbye, recorded by Emmylou Harris and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Steve Earle. The 16-time Grammy nominee and three-time winner will join us later in the show to talk about his remarkably varied career as the standard-bearer of Americana and contemporary folk songwriting. Part one. Hey, you know, sometimes we start these episodes and I just start in talking, and you just did a nice little intro of Steve Earle, and I, I don't want to let that go by. You just wanted to pause and acknowledge that. I just want to say good job. Well, thank you. you yeah, know? you know, that's... Uh, that's Steve Earle in a nutshell right there. Well, you know, we've got a longer intro coming up, but um, I think it's important to give each other these little moments of encouragement <laughs> along the way. Uh, you know, I appreciate that. And when I don't screw something up, I, I like when people notice. Yeah, well, this is a relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. It's a certain kind of relationship. But um, <laughs> speaking of relationships, we have relationships with certain people that are our patrons. Right. We have this thing called Patreon. Patreon.com slash Songcraft Show. Uh, it's how people can get involved in helping us make our show. Right. And uh, we have a new patron, a guy named Shane Grove, nice, uh, who has earned a shout out on the show. Um, he's actually not the only new patron we had this month, but there are certain tiers right. on Patreon, right? And you get things, you get access to bonus stuff, or you get a shout out on the show, stickers, t-shirts, totally. shout outs, yeah. elephant rides. I mean, just all <laughs> kind of stuff that that we're all about here. Um, so, Shane, uh, thank you so much for supporting the show, man. We appreciate it. Uh, I didn't just want to tell Scott good job, but I wanted to tell you good job. Nice. Uh, thanks for supporting Songcraft. And, you know, Patreon is also a place where the people who do support us, occasionally we, we put some kind of exclusive content up there. And we've got something uh, that we're, we're posting up there today for our Patreon members. And actually, if you become a, a new member, you, you should be able to access it as well. Um, but what it is, is, is story time with, with Scott and Paul. <laughs> uh, this interview that you're about to hear, um, the Steve Earle interview, came out great. Uh, but oftentimes... People don't know what goes on behind the scenes in order to uh, land an interview or right. the coordination that takes place to uh, to get an interview um, to, Planes, to actually trains make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I would say that this interview probably was one of the funnier uh, processes, and there were a number of roadblocks in the way. Not a, not in any way because of Steve Earle or his camp, uh, but there were some interesting circumstances that we had to uh, surmount in order to make it happen. So now gonna, it sounds like it was me. Well, no. they'll have to go to, they'll There's have just to three go to people Patreon. in the interview. It wasn't Steve, <laughs> let me tell you, that caused us these problems. <laughs> so, uh, so if you're a, a Patreon supporter or, or if you've been thinking about becoming a new Patreon supporter, we encourage you to go uh, hear the entire bizarre uh, story. I think, I think you'll enjoy it. 
Yep, check it out at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And as we're talking about this interview, we, part of the reason that we went to great lengths to make it happen is that this is a special one for you. Yeah. Steve Earle is someone who's been central to kind of your formation as a music fan and writer yourself and all that stuff. Yeah, there's no question that back in my college days, Steve Earle was my favorite artist yeah. uh, by far. I... Um, definitely idolized Steve Earle. He was a guy that made me think about songwriting in an entirely new way um, because he w- he lived in Nashville at the time. He's, he's in New York now, but at the time he lived in Nashville, I lived in Nashville, so I got to see him live yeah. uh, several times. I got to hang around him uh, several times. In fact, um, you know when you're like young and you're impressionable and you're trying to sort of figure out like what people do and and how you how you act and like <laughs> what, what do humans do yeah how do yeah. how do humans behave yeah. and what what kind of you know uh, one interesting thing that I picked up from Steve Earle that I carry with me to this day is uh, I always have my keys like clipped to my belt like yeah. I don't put my keys in my pocket hmm. and I remember when I was in college I noticed that Steve Earle clipped his keys to his belt. And that was the reason I started doing it. Wow. And now I don't even think about it. I just, just what I do. But if I trace that habit back, that actually goes right to Steve Earle. So, wow. so in a way you could say Steve Earle has affected my daily life uh, incredibly. Cause yeah, you, you really were an Earl girl yeah. back in those days. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it's all about where you put your keys. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this was, you know, a, a special one for me, um, because Steve was, uh, such an influence on me and, and somebody that I was, uh, you know, a huge fan of, yeah. uh, at the time and, and still have immense respect, um, for, for his songwriting and, uh, and, and all that he has contributed to the music world. Um, and, and, you know, being that this is a Nashville guy and we're Nashville guys, sometimes when we do these interviews, uh, and it's clear that we all kind of know who some of the same people are, uh, there will be references made to certain yeah, individuals. But a shorthand. Yeah, a bit of yeah. shorthand. So um, my dad used to work for a, a music publishing company called Combine Music. We've talked about that before. Uh, my dad is Woody, and, and Steve mentions, uh, you know, having known him at some yeah. point in the interview. Steve talks about Bob Beckham, who ran uh, Combine Music, whom he refers to as as Mr. Beckham. Um, and so some folks might think, like, wait, who's he talking about? Yeah, yeah. So that fills that in. Also over at MCA Records, uh, Tony Brown, very yeah. well-known producer. Played with Elvis for a yeah, while. He did connection. Uh, I was for, gonna say that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, why stop me now? I'm on a roll. Um, but Tony Brown was was Steve's producer, and uh, uh, Jimmy Bowen was the head of MCA Records uh, at the time in in Nashville. So when Steve talks about Bob Beckham and and Tony Brown and Jimmy Bowen, that's yeah. that's who all those guys are. And beyond that, just. Hold on to your hats and jump in and enjoy the ride. You know, and uh, Scott mentioned the whole thing about the keys. Uh, and you're going to hear some jangling throughout the interview. That's not <laughs> Steve's keys. Uh, Steve was wearing a, a wealth of bracelets. He has a lot of bracelets. A lot of bracelets. Yeah. Um, and so you're going to hear those bracelets jangling. And uh, we left it in there, man. It's yeah. part of the charm. It's part of the it's part of the show. So, uh, you know, and, and on a future episode, we'll explore who it was that inspired Paul to constantly lose his keys. <laughs> Part two. Singer, songwriter, musician, author, actor, record producer, and progressive political activist Steve Earle rose to prominence in the 1980s with his album Guitar Town, which topped the Billboard Country Album Chart, earned two Grammy nominations, picked up a Top New Male Artist nomination from the Academy of Country Music, and is included among Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. Raised in Texas, Earle launched his career in Nashville playing bass in legendary songwriter Guy Clark's backing band. 
Following a stint recording with a rockabilly-influenced sound for Epic Records, Earl switched to MCA where he broke through with now-classic songs such as Guitar Town, Someday, Goodbye is All We've Got Left, My Old Friend the Blues, Fearless Heart, Nowhere Road, I Ain't Ever Satisfied, The Devil's Right Hand, The Other Kind, and Copperhead Road, which reached the top 10 on Billboard's mainstream rock chart. Drug addiction, homelessness, and a period of incarceration derailed Earl's career for several years before he reemerged in the mid-1990s as a standard-bearer for contemporary folk and Americana music. His eclectic comeback albums Train A Comin', I Feel Alright, and El Corazon garnered near-universal critical praise. The new millennium found Steve continuing to earn attention for his songs including Galway Girl, John Walker's Blues, Jerusalem, The Revolution Starts Now, and City of Immigrants. Always difficult to categorize, Steve has recorded the highly acclaimed bluegrass album The Mountain with the Del McCory Band, a traditional blues album called Terraplane, and a duet album with Sean Colvin. In total, Earl has released 19 studio albums and has earned 16 Grammy nominations, including three wins in the Best Contemporary Folk Album category. Steve's songs have been covered by Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Patti Loveless, Joan Baez, Travis Tritt, Vince Gill, Ricky Skaggs, Wanda Jackson, Bob Seger, Levon Helm, and many others. His son, Justin Towns Earl, is a respected singer-songwriter in his own right. Steve, welcome to Songcraft. It's good to be here. So in a couple of weeks, you'll be hosting the sixth annual Camp Copperhead songwriting camp, uh, where you really kind of dive deep into the writing process through workshops and private performance. I'd love to know about why you started putting those together and what you kind of hope those aspiring writers who participate will take away from that experience. Wow. Um, It it started with uh, uh, the Old Town School of Folk Music um, in about 1998 or 99 started talking to me about... uh, Chicago's like kind of one of the places that I... It's kind of where my career sort of took off. Was that yeah. WXRT? You know, I, I knew I wasn't long for country radio. I'd had a number one country album, but nobody seemed to care. They just wanted me gone. So <laughs> I started looking for an out. And XRT sort of saved my life. They'd sort of invented the AAA format, you know, single handedly. And they played Guitar Town and Exit Zero. And then by the time, you know, Copperhead came along, I'm making records for rock radio on purpose. They're still pretty country, but in a lot of ways. But. It was what it was, and Chicago was just an important place to me, and so I spent a lot of time there. And the Old Town School always fascinated me, just that whole deal of like, you know, I knew about the the Earl of Old Town and the Quiet Night and the folk clubs there. That's where John Prine came from, and 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 uh, I just Steve Goodman, and yeah. you know, a lot of people I looked up to. So I started uh, going to the Old Town School sometimes when I was in, in town, and they started talking to me about a songwriting course and, and, and wondering what I would teach, you know. Uh, and I decided to do it one winter. I went oh, January and February, and originally I did. I decided I wanted small classes and to teach it like a real, like a real class. I limited it to 30 students, and... Uh, I did. I just camped out in Chicago for two months in the dead of winter. I was about to say, of all times, January and February. Well, it was the only time I could do it because yeah. I wasn't touring as much. And and, and it was just, uh, you know, I had this apartment in the Ukrainian village and, and froze my butt off. And Justin went with me, and he turned 18 while we were there mm. and, and uh, stayed when I went home. But it was, uh, it, it was just... Uh, what I taught was a course originally that was based on the the Harry Smith anthology 
of of American folk music that had just been released on CD. Mm. And I gave everybody that anthology for Christmas because I've always believed without that that collection of folk music there is no rock and roll you know a lot of modern pop music comes from those records and and uh you know i think the idea my belief is that bob dylan single-handedly elevated you know songwriting to literature in that moment and, and did it on purpose it wasn't just because he was more talented than everybody else he was but he did what he did on purpose and uh-huh. he knew exactly what he was doing and I think that he wanted to be John Lennon and John Lennon wanted to be him. And at that moment, <laughs> rock and roll becomes an art form. And I really, truly believe that's the moment that it happened. So that was the beginning of it being, it wasn't just him trying to be Woody Guthrie anymore. Right. And, uh, right. You know, so I just decided that you can't make anybody a songwriter, but there are things about this that can be taught. And originally I was teaching the relationship between it was about uh, the relationship between traditional material and and modern songwriting or the cool shit to steal. That was basically <laughs> the idea of it. So. <laughs> well, your most recent album, Guy, is, of course, a tribute to uh, the great Guy Clark. And you did an album of Towns Van Zandt songs yeah. called Towns several years back. You know, there's not a lot of songwriters that get to meet their heroes, much less songwriters who get to befriend their heroes and, and, and really learn from them in the context of, uh, of a personal relationship. Um, talk about uh, how you first kind of got to know those guys and what you gleaned from them. I'm sure it's a ton, but a couple of things that you gleaned from them that you've kind of carried with you as a writer. Well, I, I met Towns first and I met him in Texas. Uh, you know, I like my dad wouldn't ever let me have an electric guitar, so I started became a folky by default and, and started playing coffee houses also because I was too young to play places that serve liquor. So, <laughs> And I'm backtracking <laughs> to the earlier Bob Dylan records because a biology teacher uh, that I had in high school had a great local country band and was into really cool stuff. And, a, and the drama teacher uh, gave me my first copy of The Free Will and Bob Dylan because my first Bob record would have been Highway 61 just because of my age. You know, yeah. cause That came out when I was 10, you know, so... Um, you know, playing coffee houses in Texas, I immediately started hearing about Towns Van Zandt. And then when I got to Houston uh, on my own, I started hearing about Guy as well. I used to play a place called Sand Mountain, which was a coffee house. It was on its last legs by the time I played there. But there was a mural on the back wall, which was Mickey Newberry, uh, Jerry Jeff Walker, uh, Towns, Guy, yeah. and uh, a guy named Don Sanders, who was, and, and, and Gary B. White, who wrote, I think I'm going to love you for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. It was in from Houston, and the reason Jerry Jeff ended up in Houston and lived in the in uh, Towns lived in an apartment above Sand Mountain for a period, and Jerry Jeff would crash with him there. Right, and uh, it was that's where Mr. Bojangles was written. I'm pretty sure it's that mm-hmm. apartment. And um, th- the reason that Jerry Jeff knew to go to Houston was Gary B. White because he was from there. They were in a band called Circus Maximus together in '68 in Greenwich Village, and of course Towns makes his first record that same year. Guy played, um, knew a lot of old cowboy songs and was a pretty straight up folk singer for a long time and didn't start writing until he was in his late 20s. And by the time I got to Houston, he was long gone. He'd gone to the West Coast and then been signed by Sunbury Dunbar out there. And he didn't like L.A. all that much. That's where L.A. Freeway comes from. You know? and so <laughs> right. they relocated him and Susanna to, to Nashville. And so by the time I got to Nashville in November 1974, I already knew Towns, which gave me an automatic introduction to Guy. And I met Guy yeah. 
at Bishop's Pub, which is where the Tin Angel is, that restaurant I'm yeah. listening oh, yeah. now. Yeah. In the back room, there was a pool table back there. And, and uh, Richard Dobson, who was another songwriter from Texas, had gone now that I'd met in Houston at the University of Houston Coffee House, was tending bar there. And I walked in one night and said, Guy's here. And he knew that I was looking for Guy. And um, you know, see, keep in mind, Guy did not have a record out. I knew his songs from Dear Jeff Walker singing them huh. you know, so yeah. by that time. So. Uh, Guy's record, first record, didn't come out till about eight or nine months after I got to town. In fact, I sang on Desperado's "Waiting for a Train." That's the uh, first record I ever got my name on. So, wow! Wow! Uh, but I, I, I decided that this is what I wanted to do. So that eventually led me. Yeah, you know, for Texans, it's Mickey Newberry, Guy, and you know, Towns fans, and and Chris Christopherson. Chris yeah. was gone by the time I got to town. He was already in in California by the time I got there because I didn't get there till '74. But yeah. Um, you know, it's that thing of, um, I just got lucky. I also saw Mance Lipscomb and Lightning Hopkins in the same room at the same time. Wow. I got to Houston in time for that. I just, wow. I was I was looking for the things that that were going to make me be able to do this better. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I sought them out. I did whatever I had to do to get to them. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so what did you kind of, as a young writer, what did you kind of take from, from those guys that in terms of understanding the craft? Um, Towns was um i figured out that towns read constantly you know that's the only thing that he ever did besides drink and write songs was he read and he um that was that was a big deal i i you know i mean i always read but i but that sort of it didn't it became more important to me instead of less important to me and i spent as much time reading as i did the kind of songwriting that we did, it was as important or more important to read than it was to listen to records. Mm. Huh. So that became a part, of, a big part of it. And um, Towns, Towns as a teacher was more like he'd give you a copy of "Bear My Heart at Wounded Knee" and tell you to go read it. <laughs> right. And um, he said, "You've never read Bear My Heart at Wounded Knee?" And I said, "No, nah, man, I'm sorry, I haven't been embarrassed, but I had." He says, "Well, here." And he dug around in this box, a cardboard box, in the back of this cabin that I'd lived in before him, and kind of turned over to him and. He um, he said, "Here, read that." And he gives me a beat to hell copy of, of that old paperback of Bear My Heart and Wounded Knee." And and um, and he said, "Then why you got to read this?" And he handed me a copy of War and Peace. Oh my God! And I'm like, oh, "Okay, you know, I haven't had any homework in a long time." But, what do I do next year? So yeah, so I went off and I read both of them, and I returned books. So right. I was living in San Miguel Allende basically at the time, and commuting to Nashville, which was a long commute, but it made sense in my life at the time, and I. I, when I got ready to head back from Mexico, I went back up to the house and I gave Towns his books back. And he said, I said, I, I, said, I want to thank you for making me read uh, Bear My Heart at Wounded Knee. That's, that's a, a really big deal. And, and, I'm, and I want to thank you for making me read it. He goes, cool. What about War and Peace? And then he starts asking all these questions. And I figure out about 15 minutes, Towns had never fucking read War and Peace. <laughs> so, you know, so I have him to thank for that because I dropped out in the ninth grade and I never would have read War and Peace if it had been for Towns and had that. That's amazing. So, but so he was more like, give you a book and tell you to go read it and tell you to put the cap back on the bottle or somebody will, will kick it over. <laughs> Whereas Guy showed me how he laid songs out on the page. He showed me tricks. There weren't necessarily how to do it as much as this is how I do it. Mm. And, and, and watching him, I realized that there's a reason why they call these things that artists do disciplines. Mm. He, he was disciplined. The, huh. the difference between Towns and guys like the difference between Kerouac and, and Allen Ginsberg. Mm. You know, um, 
Kerouac wasn't particularly disciplined. He wrote when he wrote, and he wrote, which was a lot at certain points in his life, but he wrote less and less, and he drank more and more, and he died young. Yeah. Um, Towns was kind of like that. Guy wrote every day, mm-hmm. you know, and he lived longer, and he left a big body of work, and that's the same thing with Alan. So, yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, you know, it's just... Uh, it's one of the things that saved my ass along the way was, uh, you know, I, I did the wheels finally came off for me, but I got a lot done up until then. Yeah. And then, and I stuck with it. Hmm. I knew that, that I was doing something. I'd witnessed somebody doing something, even though they weren't making any money. Towns never really made any money. Yeah. And, you know, I'd committed to doing it whether I ever made any money at it or not. And I think it make you know, I think you do it differently when you when you commit to doing something, whether you make yeah. any money or not. And it took me, I was 19 when I got to Nashville. I was 20 when I saw my first publishing deal. I was 31 when Guitar Town came out. Wow. It yeah. took me 13 years to, to, to really make any money. Yeah. And um, yeah. so it's just one of those deals and I stuck with it. Um, yeah. yeah. And I'm glad I did and I don't have any regrets. And I never felt sorry for myself when I was when I was struggling with it. My father one day said to me, I was headed for San Miguel and I was in San Antonio and he called me, he was in Houston, tracked me down a friend of mine's house and said, you know what, man, you can get a job $17, $18 an hour right now in a refinery or oil rig or something. You gave it a good shot once you come back. I said, dad, I decided about two hours ago that I'm going to Mexico and I'm going to stay for the next couple of months. Can you do that? And he never argued with me about it. Again. it was one of That's great. You know, as as far as like making a little bit of money uh, as a writer, you know, you did find some commercial success in 82 with When You Fall In Love, a top 15 hit for Johnny Lee. And of course, we know him for the song Looking For Love. single that I had that actually generated income. John Scott Sherrill and I wrote it actually and I didn't, I wrote for a tiny publishing company that belonged to Pat Carter and Roy Day so there was nobody to hang out with so I hung out at Combine mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's where I know Woody from that's where I know uh, yeah. Scotty from that's where I know all those guys uh, DePiro, you know those guys were my contemporaries you know yeah. at, at that point and Scotty and I wrote it for Johnny Lee and Johnny Lee recorded it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was, you know, there's no, I have no emotional connection to that right. song. It was Scotty's title and, and, and we wrote together Bob Beckham. Who, there's only one person I ever called Mr. On those two streets. And that was, that was Mr. Beckham huh. and <laughs> Beckham wouldn't split a con a copyright. So what we did was he made a deal with my publisher. So we alternated, you know, Beckham would publish one. Luckily, Beckham got that one, so it got wow. cut. None of the ones wow. that my publisher had ever got covered. So that's one of those. That's so I was glad that Bob got that one. So they were all pretty smart because, and especially if you hang out around Combine, because because Mr. Beckham was smart enough to know that the only way you got to help me make it through the night, the only way you got a commercial song of that quality was to let Chris Christopherson write the Silver Tongue Devil on it. <laughs> right, you know, don't right. turn around and try to tell everybody what right. to write. Yeah. And at yeah. that moment when I was hanging out, the culture started to change at Combine. And you know, I don't even want to get into right. naming any names or anything, but everybody was aware of it that was there yeah. at the time. And it was, we did learn. I was in a panic because Justin had been born, my oldest son. And so I was trying to write the most commercial songs I could write, but everybody told me they were too country. And, and it was, I never, none of them got cut until years later. I wrote 
sometimes she forgets that Travis Tritt did later. You know, during that same period, I wrote a song called um, "Nothing Without You" that's on Train and Coming. I wrote during that period. You were signed to Epic Records in the early 1980s, where you recorded some rockabilly influence stuff and even hit the lower end of the Billboard country chart with songs like "Nothing But You." Well, I got about a million things I need to do. It wasn't until you moved over to MCA and released the highly acclaimed Guitar Town album in 1986 that you first began to emerge as the Steve Earle that we know today. Um, talk about the process of writing that record and, and kind of locking into your own voice as a singer-songwriter. I knew that that rockabilly thing was not going to... Um, there were too many different kinds of songs from the beginning. That, that was one of the reasons I had trouble getting a record deal was I wrote a lot of different kinds of songs, and yeah. I was okay with that. But, but people, when they're in the music business, and especially people, once it gets out up from the record labels, they... We got a little too concerned with those little dividers that separate records in a record shop. I mean, yeah, everybody yeah. wants to know what kind of music it is. And yeah. that was never important to me. Hmm. Yeah. You yeah. know, I liked a lot of country music. I liked a lot of rock and roll. I kind of saw them as the same thing. The country music I like and the rock and roll I like are the same thing. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the country music that I don't like and the rock and roll I don't like are the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's one of those deals. I'm, well, and I've always known that, and I've always been okay with it. Yeah. That's how I met Richard Bennett, because Richard had played on a, a rockabilly record that I'd heard, because he was interested in that stuff, too. And yeah. I, then, you know, we put out the rockabilly records after I signed with Epic. They didn't work at country radio. So Emery Gordy, I was given a list of producers. I was taken away from Pat and Roy, and, and they said, here's a list of producers, pick one. Yeah. And Emery Gordy was the only person that I, who I knew anything or respected because he did, uh, he'd been in Emily Harris's band for years, you mm -hmm. know? So Emery ended up producing that stuff, and, and Richard played on it. And um, it just, a lot of that stuff on Guitar Town was written... You know, we'd released a couple of singles. I'd lost confidence in my writing. I recorded the last session I did for Epic. We did an expanded band thing. It was a waist slicker. Um, but it was like uh, Richard flew in and, and, and to play guitar on it. I remember uh, Mary Martin, who was, who was Emery's girlfriend at the time and manager, said, so she's from Canada. She's the one that introduced, you know, Bob Dylan to the band when she was working for Albert Gresham. Mm. She said, oh. she says, Emery, isn't flying guitar players into Nashville a little like flying hookers into Vegas? <laughs> and, uh, but, but Richard was special, you know, compared to other guys that were around. And I went to see the Born in the USA tour at, at Murphy, at Murphy Center. You know, I went with Bob, with Bob Warman because he had an extra ticket and Mary couldn't go. <laughs> and, I saw Bruce come out and open with Born in the USA, watch that whole show. I went home and wrote Guitar Town the next day. Wow. I made the decision wow. I was going to write a record to be a record because yeah. I saw that show that night, and that's wow. why there is a Guitar Town. Well, one of the classic songs on Guitar Town is My Old Friend the Blues, which was actually covered by Percy Sledge, which is pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Which is like, whoa, didn't see that coming. I know exactly how yeah. it happened, actually, though, because it was a friend of mine that, that managed Percy Sledge for, you know, the last part of his life and career. Right. And, and he took it to him and, yeah. and he recorded it, you know. Yeah. And uh, 
it was just one of those things that uh, it was an honor. Yeah. It's a very big deal. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It, which just made me think, you know, you're the sort of guy, like you say, you write a lot of different types of songs. So right. there are opportunities for a lot of different type of people to record your songs. Well, look, when I was writing My Old Friend the Blues, I was trying my best to be Willie Nelson, you know? <laughs> so I wrote it for Guitar Town. I wrote that whole album in one six or eight month period. Yeah. But it was, the that, that song's based on... Um, two songs, two Willie Nelson songs. One's called The Local Memory and one's called Sad Songs and Waltzes Aren't Selling This Year. That was the vibe that I was going for on that. And so if you do that, then it's then it is like um Nightlife or, or or Georgia, which isn't his song, but might as well be now. You know, you're doing you're going for something that sort of transcends the instrumentation I used on it. It makes perfect sense for Percy mm. Slade's Yeah, Yeah. Just when every ray of hope was gone I should have known that you would come along I can't believe I ever doubted you My whole friend, the blues Another lonely night well, I think Guitar Town, you know, resonated with rock fans who maybe weren't your typical country listeners at the time. Um, and you followed that up with Exit Zero, which featured the song I Ain't Ever Satisfied. And that was the first single of yours to appear on a rock chart. Whoa. Copperhead Road was even more rock influenced, and and the title track from that album ended up in the top ten on Billboard's mainstream rock charts. Well, him and my You know, Nashville has always kind of been a city that, you know, has its own set of rules, whether spoken or unspoken. Um, did you get pushback as you were kind of pushing the boundaries of the country genre? Well, I did on Exit Zero. Exit Zero, Bowen set out to kill the record, and mm. he just was going to prove that I was wrong. He, he First thing he did was Guitar Town had gone to number one, even though they tried to pull the plug on it. The album, not, not I never had a number one single. I, 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 Guitar Town itself went to eight, and yeah. uh, Goodbye's All We Got Left went to went to eight or nine. Um, Sheila Shipley and and Jerry Bowen hated me, so it was just <laughs> one of those deals. And I knew it. I knew that I had to figure something out. Then I got called in to Bowen's office when his office wasn't in the the, the building. It was in it was over at Soundstage upstairs, mm. and and he said. Uh, Okay, well, your record did pretty good. Now we're going to send you some songs. You're going to start with so I've already written the second record. Huh. And he just jaw kind of dropped for a second. <laughs> and, and um, you know, he just went through this whole thing about and pushing that. Then the pushing and pulling started then. You know, yeah. it was like, and it was every bit of that second record was a war, hmm. you know, up to. And the only time I ever impressed Jimmy Bowen was when we were making Guitar Town, he raided the studio one night. And he came in, and Chuck Ainley was complaining about the console, and, and we were in backstage, mm. and it, the, the smaller studio there at, 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 um, at Soundstage. And he said, 
he goes, ah, and he's just being Boeing and holding forth. He goes, he goes, yeah, I know that console's a piece of shit. Keeps you young people from getting out of hand and, you know, shit like that. And <laughs> I had some really good Colombian pot. And I, the only time I ever impressed Jimmy Bowen is I rolled a joint because he was there interrupting the session anyway. <laughs> and we're, we're smoking this joint that's going around and he's holding forth. And of course, the joint comes to him, and he doesn't ever let it go again. He smokes half the <laughs> joint by himself. And then suddenly, in the middle of a sentence, he stops. And he looked over at me, and he said, son. And that's the only time I ever impressed Jimmy Bowen the entire time that I was on MCA <laughs> Records. And then, Amazing. So it was war. And, and uh, oh, and then the next battle was over the cover. I wanted, the record was called Exit Zero, and I had a highway sign. I wanted to be the cover. And I was, the, I was, Tony Brown called me one night and said, I say, I'm going to buy you a steak, maybe at Jimmy Kelly's. So we go to Jimmy Kelly's Steakhouse and we get there, we order food, we talk about nothing. And just as I get my steak, and Tony tells a different version of the story. He tells people I threw a steak at him at Jimmy Kelly's. I would never waste a Jimmy Kelly steak <laughs> throwing it at a record executive of, of any stripe. But I, I like... I, I, I take my first bite of the steak, I cut it, I have the fork almost to my mouth, and and he just blurts it out. He goes, Bowen says you gotta have your picture on the cover and there's nothing and that, that's all there is to it. And I just stopped for a second and I kinda of scraped that bite off of the fork and laid my utensils down and I got up and I walked out of Jimmy Kelly. That's all that happened. But it's actually a better story, but but uh, it, I mean I think, but but uh you know, but I did get the cover I wanted eventually, mainly because they just didn't care and they were planning on just yeah. having you know taking me up back and shooting me as soon as it was released. <laughs> but I was in I was asked to come to England to produce a record on a band called The Bible by a guy named Nigel Grange, who's no longer around, who had a he had an imprint uh, at Chrysalis called Ensign. The Water Boys were on that mm -hmm. label, and I was a big Water Boys fan. So, and I'm working on that record, and um, there was I heard that. Um, Irving Azoff was in town, who ran MCA proper. And right. I went to the, it was the launch party of a new imprint. They were restarting the uni imprint. And, yeah. and David Simone had been hired, um, uh, it was, who was English, who was, had been hired to run it. So I, 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 was, um, I was an MCA artist and, and Irving liked me, you know, yeah. and um, he just promised Bowen he would stay out of his hair. And I went to Irving at that cocktail party that night, and I said, I want to be moved to uni. He goes, he got this grin on his face. He said, uni's not for country. Uni's for rock and roll and hip-hop. And I said, I'll make a rock record. And so it was a conscious. And so I went to Arden to record it, to get out of Bowen's way. And, yeah. and uh, it wasn't decided that I was going to – I had a place on uni until after I finished the record. Wow. But wow. promotion people did come over and heard Copperhead Road and said, there's no way we can get that on country radio. They heard the title track. And – now it, it's it, Copperhead Road is um, is played in every country disco in the world. When the huh. line, I was I was on the street and in jail when this happened. The line dance thing, right? You know, happened. The only thing that survived the line dance craze, you know, because there were originally where that comes from is is is, is the Cotton Eye Joe and the Shoddish in country right. dance halls. There, that were the only two line dances that there were. Yeah, uh, you did them every night. They still do them every night. All right. Then there were all these other line dances based on all these songs. There was one for Achy Breaky Heart. There was one, for, but there was one for Copperhead Road. Yeah, which I wasn't even aware of till long after I got out of jail. <laughs> 
the Copperhead line dance has survived, and, and, and any country joint where they play records, where they have a DJ, Copperhead Road happens every wow. single Jeez. fucking... It's like I wrote Cotton Eye Just like you planned it. The what? Yeah. Just like you planned Just it. Just like I planned it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm honored by it. Somebody says, doesn't that irritate you? And I know, that's like I wrote the Cotton Eye Joe. That's a big deal. <laughs> right. The Galway Girl is, is like the song... That's my most streamed song because there are Irish people everywhere and it's a part of Irish culture and that's permanent you know yeah. that's, Wait, not, that's not ever going to go away it's interesting when you can look back on a song and see its resonance you know like you, you write them for one reason like a song like Devil's Right Hand that, that's yeah. been covered by everyone from Waylon Jennings to Bob Seger to Johnny Cash why does a song like that in your opinion resonate with so many different artists i think it's just you know that deal of um um everybody has their own reasons for 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 relating to that song nobody's you know, it's set in the 19th century. I wrote a lot of songs about juvenile delinquents in the 19th century, and and um, but juvenile delinquents are juvenile delinquents, and guns are scary. Um, it wasn't an anti-gun song when I wrote it. When I wrote it, I mean, it was about guns being bad, just like don't take your guns to town. Or I was conflicted about it, but I grew up in Texas hunting and fishing, and I didn't see anything in Congress about being a peacenik with a fucking arsenal in your house when I was growing up. And when I wrote The Devil's Right Hand, I had a whole trailer full of guns. So it's just one of those things. I didn't stop having guns around until until Justin was 14 years old, and he took the pistol I kept loaded under my mattress, and he hid it in his room, and he wouldn't tell me where it was. And I knew he was lying. I still know when he's lying. And I just didn't know what else to do. So couldn't find the gun, so I packed him up, strip searched him, took him to a wilderness camp in Hickman County, and wrote him a check and dropped him off. <laughs> of course, it was four, it's oh. January, so four thirty the next morning, he called me and told me where the fucking gun was. <laughs> but, but you know, and then I have not had a gun in my house ever since because wow. it finally got close enough to home. The truth is, no, most people are not going to pull the trigger to defend their families if they have a gun in the house anyway. That's what all that training in the military is about—is to get you willing. Yeah to point a gun at somebody and pull the trigger. Most people cannot do it unless yeah. they do it by accident. And, you know, yeah. so the gun, so now when I play it, it's a fucking gun control song. Wow. <laughs> so that's, uh, All these it. songs have been repurposed. I wrote it. And I wrote that song long, but 10 years before Copperhead. I wrote that song in 1977. Wow. Yeah, yeah. so it just, uh, and I recorded it once before. It's on the Rockabilly album that, that, that Epic never released, and then it was released later as early tracks. So it wow. was the second version of it. Yeah. So following your album, The Hard Way, in 1990, you know, you, you dropped out of the public eye for several years. You, you had a well-publicized battle with drug addiction, but you, you came back in the mid-90s with the Train of Coming album. It, it's a really stripped-down acoustic record. I, I love the song, Goodbye. Somewhere near Sure I made you cry A, a beautiful song, and it actually makes me sad about memories that I don't even have yet. Well, that's the deal. You it's know? about whether, yeah, that, that's the, the job is empathy. Yeah. So I've had people that lost somebody because, that died, you know, to that, that, 
that plug into that song. Yeah. You know, it's about, you know, my wife that I drove away with my drug use. That's, that's what it was the first song I wrote sober. I wrote it in a treatment center called Buffalo Valley and, and, mm. uh, in um, Lewis County, uh, Tennessee. I hadn't written anything in four and a half years. You know, I got a guitar once a week. You know, they wouldn't let me have the guitar all the time. There was a guitar there, and, and, uh, but, I, but I, was, I wasn't allowed to have it all the time because mm. I was me. And uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a recovery thing, and I get it, you know. But, yeah. but the first time I got my hands on that guitar, I wrote Goodbye. And, wow. Emmy um, wow. came in to sing on Nothing But You and uh, The Rivers of Babylon on Train and Coming, and she heard Goodbye. And then she was making... Wrecking Ball, you know, right after that, a couple of weeks later, and um, I got invited in to play on Goodbye. I ended up staying for the whole week, and I played on half the record. Yeah. I'm, I'm on that. I'm on Every Grain of Sand. I'm on the only song, um, uh, Deeper Well, and I'm on, um, oh, uh, Sweet Old World, Lulu's mm. song. Oh, yeah. She and I are both on it. I celebrated my 40th birthday um, um, recording uh, Goodbye. Wow. I played, I played wow. the guitar. If you listen to the guitar... On Emmy's version, it's it's exactly like the ver- on my version because right. it's 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 me playing two <laughs> weeks after I recorded my version. <laughs> right, right. Somewhere, I'm sure I made but I can't remember if we see. Still one of my favorite songs I've written. It's still one of the best songs I've written. That's and, incredible. You know, I mean, I'm not going to ever write one any better. I've written some that was good, but I never wrote one any better. Yeah, man. Well, it's no secret that I was a massive Steve Earle fanboy when I was in college, and I remember that um, you and my dad had run into each other in an airport somewhere, and you invited him to bring me over to the rehearsals uh, for the El Corazon album. And then you invited me to come by any time during the recording process, which I fully took you up on for multiple days. Um, and one of the things that I remember about that week that I spent kind of haunting the studio was that your son, Justin, who was, you know, maybe about 15 years old at the time, came by and he played you an original song that he'd written. And, and he and his friend had, had kind of made a little four track cassette recording or something. And um, I remember when he left, you said something like, oh, no, I think the boy might turn into a songwriter. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that was like the first thing he'd written or what, but uh, obviously it, it was close to it. I mean, yeah. he, he did not want to play acoustic guitar at first at all. So I got him a Jagstang. He had one of those Kurt Cobain Jagstangs. That was the first guitar he ever had. And uh, he played on Here I Am. We just we overdubbed him. We cut the track. It was me, Ross Rice and Brad Jones, you know, on the basic track. And and then we brought it was missing something we brought justin in and he overdubbed on it and yeah and and brad and i were standing up because 15 year old boy with an electric guitar you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. strip it down <laughs> to the what, basics that's, that's what it needed <laughs> Baker or whether you're uh, whatever you are, it's got to be as a father to kind of watch your kid get into the craft that is your thing. You know, I mean, it's got to be an interesting experience to kind of watch your kid adopt, you know, and, and see it, their it, talent unfold. It is, but in all in all, it's like soccer. You know, you just it's it's excruciatingly painful. You know, you worry <laughs> about them getting hurt. You worry about them yeah. getting you know 
you know, embarrassing themselves. You worry about them being disappointed in yourselves, and and, and you've got yourself go through it all, and you felt all that stuff yourself. So, yeah. So yeah, it yeah. can be. Uh, well, and if it it's like soccer, tough. you're like, are they ever going to score? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, well, I, I, I don't watch, I don't follow American football anymore. I follow baseball and yeah. English Premier League soccer. Those are my two sports. So. One of my favorite Steve Earle albums to this day is "The Mountain," which is a bluegrass record that you made with the Del McCory Band. And I think if your 2015 blues album "Terraplane" is kind of a companion piece, um, just in that you threw yourself completely into writing songs in a different genre than what you're known for. And in both cases, you know, some of the stuff on those records sounds like lost classic bluegrass or blues songs that had gone undiscovered. I was born on this man, this man's my home, and she holds me. Talk a little bit about that and, and what kind of muscles you flex as a songwriter when you're pursuing those kind of concept projects. They're a conscious decision. I, bluegrass, when Guy and I moved, you know, both of us, one thing we had in common is when we moved from Texas, both of us separately, you know, five years apart, we got the music that we knew and we loved, but we'd never seen up close, and that was string band music of various sorts, bluegrass, old time music. And the other long hairs besides us, the other people that smoke pot, were a bunch of people hung out with John Hartford and uh, the folks that owned the station in at the time that started it, you know. Yeah. So, um, that was fascinating to us, and we got as close to us. Good. And plus, Buck White and the girls lived next door to Guy and Susanna, so I knew them immediately, and I knew Jerry Douglas immediately. And, yeah. and that was a that was just a big deal. So I always wanted to make a bluegrass record, but I always knew how hard it was. Bluegrass is like the best way to explain it. It's like bebop. It's mm. that level of musicianship involved, and it works yeah. almost exactly the same way. Mm. Bill Monroe, people that 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 they Bill Monroe was some kind of rube are, are just not getting it. He, <laughs> he very few people invented a, a, a fucking original American art form in yeah. single handedly, and he did. Yeah. So I just uh, always wanted to do it, and I finally. Um, just decided that I made a determination to do it. And so what I did is I started hanging out the station in and every Tuesday night I was off the road to sit in with the side men, which was, you know, which was, um, you know, Rob and Ronnie. Sometimes when Ronnie was around that Ronnie got married around that time. So he started, stopped doing the side men gig so much, <laughs> but, um, who else, uh, you know, um, a uh, bunch of great, Mike Bub and started, you know, playing, sitting in and trying to figure out how to smooth my G run out. And mm. and started writing the songs, and that when I was there one night when Dell was playing there, and and uh, you know I hung out with the boys a lot, and and I said Dell, if I was to write a bluegrass record, would you would you record it with me? He said yeah, and I but I don't think he realized I was going to call him six months later and say I got the songs, <laughs> you know. So I, I wrote the record to be a record. We recorded the same thing with Terraplane. The, the blues is such a big part of what you do. If, if I saw Mance Lipscomb and Lightning Hopkins in the same room at the same time, I saw Freddie King. Uh, I knew Stevie Ray Vaughan. I know Jimmy Vaughan. I grew up with that shit. And, yeah. and uh, I was in a blues band when I was 13 years old. So wow. I, I, it was always part of what I did. And yeah. I just decided. And then plus I had Chris Masterson in the band. And Chris has been in the band 10 years now. And he's he eventually 
became a Telecaster guy, you know, and, and, and more interested in, in country stuff. But he started out as, you know, a, a Houston, you know, blues guitar prodigy. And yeah. um, he just, I knew I had the guitar player that could do it. My heart playing had gotten where I was pretty proud of it. And, and all, some of that, a lot of that record, I just played harp and sang. And, yeah. and um, but, uh, but they were both done on purpose for me to, to like go back into something that's part of what I do. Hmm. Pay tribute to it, but also to to sort of solidify, you know, ground I felt like I'd gained in this kind of journey, you know, to to being whoever I am today. Yeah. Well, your 2007 album Washington Square Serenade includes a, basically a love song to New York called "City of Immigrants." Texan, Tennessean, a Californian for a brief time, and, and now a New Yorker. In what ways have those changes in environment influenced you as a writer? Well, I'm always a Texan. I don't think you could, there's no cure for that that I've been able to find. And, and um, <laughs> it's just a thing. But, you know, it's funny, me, Newberry, Chris, Guy, we left Texas and none of us ever went back. For whatever reason, maybe because of what we do for a living, and we had to go someplace else to actually do it and make yeah. a living. I knew Austin was girls were too pretty, weather too good, dope's too cheap. I can't get anything done here, and I split. <laughs> so David only years ago, who's one of my, he was my first roommate in town when I first got there. I've known him forever. He said, I, I forget when it was. It was some point in my in my going through being all the me's I've been. He said, "Don't you ever get tired of losing yourself?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And um. He said, well, when I met you, you were a cowboy. And, you know, because nobody would recognize me with a cowboy hat when I first got to town. Mm. And, and uh, he said, and, and, and uh, then you were this or that. Now you're kind of a biker. And, and I just said, I thought about it for a minute. I said, no, I'm not worried about it at all. I think people are supposed to change. I think they're supposed to evolve. And, and mm. um, you know, I don't, um, I'm, there's a there's a core thing at the center of what I do that hasn't changed a bit. No matter how hard I tried to make a rock record, Copperhead Road's pretty country. And mm -hmm. it's especially when you compare it to country records nowadays, there's a few things in there that people blame on me on a regular basis about the way country <laughs> music is today. And and I have to admit, I did make the drums too loud. That was my fault. And, <laughs> you know. Well, your 2017 album, So You Want to Be an Outlaw, it includes a duet with Miranda Lambert, and that's a song the two of you wrote together called This Is How It Ends. This is how it ends. If you don't me back then, you wouldn't find me in the ship I'm in. Just another fool who Overall, that album is probably the countryest thing that you've done in 20 years. And it's on purpose, And, and but but it's the difference is, I think I'm probably going to settle there for a while. Yeah. I, I, and I made a conscious decision to. I just, and it's not that I was running away from it. It was just that that I think I needed to do all those other things to make a record. Like, I'm really proud of So You Want to Be an Outlaw. It's a really good fucking batch of songs. And, yeah. and I just, I got the best band I've ever had. And I love going out there and playing with it every night. Um, 
you know, I'll eventually have to go out and perform just solo because it'll get eventually get to the point where I just can't financially sustain it anymore. My life's changing because I'm only going to tour summer times and then just the odd weekend starting this September when I get off the road because I got a little boy with autism and he needs to be in New York City and and the way for to keep him there is for me to stay there nine months of the year and then yeah. he'll go to his mom in the summers in Nashville and I'll go on the road and that's the way it's going to be from probably here on out considering you know I don't have an unlimited amount of time when it gets right down to nobody does <laughs> right right I mean I think I think Miranda Lambert is is greatly. Uh, well, she's certainly appreciated in commercial country, but she's underrated kind of outside that she's, world. She's, I think the, I think she's the badass singer songwriter yeah. in Nashville right now. Yeah. I think the, with the exception of Chris Stapleton, the the best work is being done by women. Period. Huh. And they yeah. and they're not fucking getting on the radio, which is yeah. just fucking criminal. You know, I don't have a problem with modern country music. I, I said something that people misconstrued as as me bad-mouthing somebody or something. I said that, that country music was largely uh, hip-hop for people that were afraid of black people, and I said that, and I meant it. You know, <laughs> I think it's true. But it's not about, doesn't mean that I don't think it's country, it doesn't mean I don't think it's good. I don't listen to country radio that much, but I didn't in 1986 either. Yeah. You know, somebody <laughs> gets right down to it. So, <laughs> right. so it, it's like, um, it's, when I was, when Guitar Town was out, I was playing Vegas, not a casino, a country joint. I knew what exactly what I was looking. It was the kind of country place I, I grew up with. Dance floor right in front of the stage. Yeah. It's a dance hall. And this guy kept, I had the number one country album that week. I've been in Nashville for 14 years, and it had been kind of war. I was okay with that. But then this guy kept dancing by, says, go play something country. And I finally stopped in the middle of a song. I said, you know what? I have the number one country album this week. I decide what's country this week. And the same thing, these guys that are on country radio right now, whether what, whatever I think about it, they decide what's country. Wow. And, it's, and nobody needs to be telling them. They're just, they get to decide what's country at this point in the yeah. history of that yeah. music. You know, I look even all the way back to Guitar Town and, and, you know, lines like, I was born in the land of plenty and there ain't enough. Right. But you can sort of chart a trajectory of your political activism and also... Those are very political you know, records. Yeah. Guitar Town's a political record. Yeah. Copperhead Road's a very political record. Um, you've tackled the death penalty in songs like Billy Austin, Alice Unit 1, and Over Yonder. You made two overtly political albums with Jerusalem and the Revolution Starts Now in the early 2000s. And more recently, you released a single called Mississippi, It's Time, addressing the whole Confederate flag debate. Come on, Mississippi, Mississippi, don't you reckon it's time that the flag came now because the world turned around. Came move ahead if we're looking behind. Wanna know if you're with me? that you're a Texan and that your roots are in country music earn you a hearing with an audience that's more willing to consider your progressive politics than they might be if it was coming from a quote-unquote outsider? I very much hope so. Um, my next record is going to be pretty political, but it's not the preaching to the choir record I made after the war started. and after I'm in a post-September 11th record, and then after we attacked Iraq, the wrong fucking country, <laughs> I made another record. And... and 
But this record is uh, it's called Ghosts of West Virginia. It's largely written. I've written six songs that are going into a show called Coal Country. That's a it's a play that Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen wrote. The same couple that wrote The Exonerated, which is a mm-hmm. piece about death row inmates that that were wrongfully convicted. Um, but this is I wrote six or seven songs, which I'll perform in the production at the Public Theater in New York. Yeah, uh, it's like a transition. I'm like a troubadour that 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 oversees the transitions in mm. the story. Huh. And cool. uh, but but I took those those songs and extrapolated past that to a, a full length ten or eleven song album, and it's a record design. It's about West Virginia, the whole fucking record. And yeah. It's about the idea of it's it's aimed at people that voted for Trump that maybe didn't have to and maybe don't have to this time because mm-hmm. the truth mm-hmm. is, anybody that thinks that 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 everybody that voted for Donald Trump is stupid or everybody that voted for Donald Trump's a racist, everybody that voted for Donald Trump is mean. That's just simply not true. They're just, I, I really got to believe that there aren't that many mean, you know, stupid racists in the world. And mm-hmm. most of it was just people, their lives weren't getting any better. He got on television. Uh, they didn't like the alternative and some people didn't vote and that had a lot to do with it. But, um, you know, I West Virginia was the most unionized place in America until the 80s. Mm-hmm. And um, so... There's like a, still one one Democratic uh, senator there, and yeah. and he's probably, and that's all because of unionism, and yeah. that's all because of the coal mines. But the what most people believe about West Virginia is that everybody is it's pro-Trump because everybody's working in coal. One in one thousand people in the community where there is any coal has a job in coal, because yeah. the truth is it takes twenty-five guys to take. Eighty-five thousand dollars worth of coal a day out of a out of a big high-quality coal mine, just mm. because it's the machines that do it now compared yeah. to the wow. way it was done before. That's what happened to unions. Yeah. When you mechanize things, there's less workers needed. Therefore, there's less votes, less dues being paid, and yeah. that's what happened to trade unions in the United States. Yeah. It had nothing to do with politics. It was yeah. just numbers. Well, now that you've got 64 years of life and about 20 studio albums under your belt, if you could bring back your mentors, Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark, and play just one of your original songs for them to demonstrate the very best of who you are as a songwriter, um, which of your songs do you think you would pick? With Towns, I wouldn't even try to do that because he'd just give me a bunch of shit. Guy Guy (laughs) used to, um, you know, when I played The Devil's Right Hand for... Towns, he had become a little bit concerned because I had a lot of guns and I was, you know, and they were all in my truck and because <laughs> and I was living in it, you know. And he said, he said, Oh, great, you're writing songs about guns now, you know. So that was what he said. said but, but he was just fucking with me. He was jealous. I, I'm pretty sure that guy, you know, would make me play my songs for people. So I'd probably be trying to write uh, the last song I played for Guy knew was uh, The Girl on the Mountain. I'd hmm. just written it and I went by to see Guy and, uh, I think um, somebody was there. Somebody else was there, but I played it. I played it for Guy, and um, um, you know, it would be something. It would be too weird to play um, uh, "Goodbye, Michelangelo" for somebody that's alive. Especially <laughs> right. it was written for them when they were dead. <laughs> but um, you know, it's probably. Um, what am I most impressed with? What am I impressed myself the most with? It would probably just, with Guy, I would go for something that I thought I'd just done a really good job and taking it past the decimal point. So probably, um, um, I don't know. Um, they hadn't heard. Um, 
Oh, maybe the Firebreak line. Hmm. Just because it's a folk song, you know, and that was what impressed, I think, him about me is that I was willing to do research and I wrote these historical pieces that were sort of based on a lot of research involved in the Firebreak line, that whole second verse, you know, Ed Pulaski is a friend of mine. It's obscure, but Ed Pulaski was a, was a, worked for the Forest Service and, and, um, the 20s and he uh the big huge fire and and he he and number one he invented the pulaski tool which is that mm. thing that looks like a, a hoe on one side or mm. a mattock and yeah. an axe on yeah. the, a broad axe on the other side that's called a pulaski tool wow. yeah and uh the other thing that that upcountry firefighters use that that's specifically made for that's called a chingadero which <laughs> is like you know that means basically this fucking thing, you know, and I, and I couldn't do that to rhyme with anything. You know? It's a more recent invention, but he's also famous for what it says in the verses. Ed Pulaski and his crew, which was a big crew, because it was before they got to the idea of a hotshot crew that was only twenty guys that could move faster. They got burned over, a fire reversed on them, and they, he took them into an abandoned mine shaft. The guys didn't want to go in. They were from around there. They knew there were bear. When there was a fire, there were bears and snakes and shit yeah. in the mine trying to get away from the fire. <laughs> so they didn't want to go in there. So he pulled his, his service revolver because he was essentially a ranger, yeah. and he made everybody stay in there, and he got his whole crew out. Oh, my that God. Was, uh, that's oh. what the second was. He invented this thing like an axe swing, and he never left a member of his crew behind well steve when i was uh probably about 18 or 19 years old i started getting into into songwriting. I started getting interested by the concept of songwriting, trying to write some songs and stuff. Got super into Bruce Springsteen. My dad said, you need to get Steve Earle's Guitar Town record. I said, I don't like country music. He said, just get it. And then you can tell me if I'm wrong. That opened up a whole new world that took me deep into country music ultimately, but also really was like inspirational for me as a kid who was trying to figure out how songs are put together. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.